0: This morning I want to start out by helping us kind of figure out where are we in this book, Exodus, and where are we in the land? So right now, where are we? We're at Mount Horeb, also called Mount Sinai. That's where Moses went up on the mountain. God talked to him. They'd come out of Egypt. They're probably out now about 10, 11 months, they've been located in the same spot. They came from this beautiful, lush Nile delta, lots of water, and now they're out in the middle of the desert. And God brought them out there on purpose. So they're out near Mount Horeb in the desert. That's where we are geographically. Now, where are we in regard to the whole book? There's 40 chapters in this book. Where are we? Well, we're kind of in between... All of the exodus coming out of Egypt, coming to Mount Sinai. God giving them the law, telling them how to build the tabernacle. Then you have chapters 32 through 34. And then afterwards, eventually they're going to build the tabernacle. But what happened in the episode last week? Then the Lord sent a plague on the people because they made the calf the one that Aaron made. So the dust is settling after whatever this plague was. We're not really sure what this plague was. We don't know how many people died. We don't know exactly what, what happened to the people. We just know that this happened, and it happened because they rejected God, and they chose idols instead. While he was up with Moses on the mountain, giving him the Ten Commandments, talking to him, Moses comes down, chucks the Ten Commandments, breaks them, and then a bunch of people are killed, And then the dust settles, there's some kind of plague, and here we are in the desert. But the one thing we do know is why this happened. Because they made a calf, the one that Aaron made. Isn't it interesting that he would say it that way? So who made the calf? They both did. I think God is, through Moses, telling us they both have equal blame in this. They both chose to reject me as God and worship me and instead made this idol with gold. And by the way, if you remember back in the story, God blessed the people and they were able to talk to their neighbors and say, hey, could you give me all your gold? And the people gave them gold and they took it out of the land. What were they supposed to use that gold for? Probably to build God's tabernacle. And here they used it instead to build an idol. So we're starting off bad as we leave chapter 32 and we enter chapter 33. And that's where we're going to pick up this morning. God is talking with Moses. I'm not sure if he's in the tent, which you're going to learn about in a minute, or if he's still up on the mountain. It's a little bit vague, but he's talking to to Moses and we pick up the story there. And this is what God says. The Lord said to Moses, depart, go up from here, You and the people whom you have brought up out of the land of Egypt to the land which I swore to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, saying, to your offspring, I will give it. I will send an angel before you. I will drive out the Canaanites, the Amorites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. Go up to the land flowing with milk and honey, but I will not go up among you, lest I consume you on the way, for you are a stiff-necked people." So we see from this, God is very offended by Israel's sin with the golden calf to the point where his presence with them is now jeopardized. Matter of fact, he might even kill them. So God is going to withdraw from them, but he's keeping his promise. I'll send you up there. I'm going to send an angel, but I'm withdrawing. It reminds me kind of in a, a similar way, only God's threat here is very real, but it reminds me of, when people go camping sometimes and they have their kids and their kids are going crazy and then the dad says, if you don't stop it, I'm going to turn this car around right now. We're going to go back home. Only he doesn't really mean it. But in this case, God is making a way stronger threat and he means it. They might be going off to the promised land without God in the midst of them. But he said, I'll keep my promise. I'll send an angel with you. But Not my angel. So even that is a change of God withdrawing from them a little bit. The place where God had shown his presence on the mountain, now they're going to leave without him with them. Now, if you think about it for a second, every promise up to this point in the book is in jeopardy. The whole tabernacle, the whole point of the tabernacle was that God would dwell in the midst of his people and go with them everywhere that they went on this journey. And now he's saying, I'm not even going to go with you. So you're like, well, well, wait a second. What about the tabernacle? I mean, Exodus 25, 8 says that, let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell in their midst. This, is, this would be terrifying news. So what do we read next? The people respond. When they heard this disastrous word, they mourned and no one put on his ornaments. For the Lord had said to Moses, Say to the people of Israel, You are a stiff-necked people. If for a single moment I should go up among you, I would consume you. So now take off your ornaments, that I may know what to do with you. Therefore the people of Israel stripped themselves of their ornaments from Mount Horeb onward. Disastrous word. This sort of reminds me of back when I got cancer, which was the news in itself was tough to take. But then the nurse and the doctor come in and start explaining to me what radiation does to your neck. It's one of the most painful places to get radiation. Your saliva is going to stop working. Your taste buds are going to stop working. You won't even be able to swallow. It's going to be so painful. It's going to be like swallowing shards of glass and razor blades all at the same time. And so you won't be able to eat. And so... What we're going to do is put a tube in your stomach. I was like, what? Wait a minute, wait a minute. Is, isn't there another way? Uh, I, I don't want a tube in my stomach. That scared me to death. Can't, I, I'm a pretty tough guy. I think I can handle it. Maybe they said they've seen one person be able to eat enough food to, to get enough calorie intake while having this kind of radiation. So I was like, oh, okay, all right, I'll get the tube. All of that news was devastating enough. Now imagine if my wife leans over to me and says, Hey, I just want you to know I'm going to be moving out while this is going on. And I'm going to stay somewhere else. But don't worry, I'm going to hire a nurse for you. That would be devastating on top of everything I already had. And again, that's just a tiny comparison to the devastation that these people must have been feeling and Moses. You drug us out of Egypt. I mean, you did all these amazing, miraculous things. You got us out of Egypt. We're in the middle of the desert now, and we still have 250 miles to go, and now you're telling us you're on your own, but I'll send my angel ahead to make sure you can get through the peoples? That would be a really scary. Super fearful time for them. So Israel does what they should do, and they mourn. And it seems like it's it's a true kind of repentance, at least at this point. They don't want to go without the presence of God, so they take off their ornaments. And there's a, just a sliver of hope in there when you hear God say, so that I might know what to do with you. Like, he hasn't made up his mind yet that he's going to consume them, but he, he, he actually is going to destroy people that he goes into, you know, the lands they're going into, but he actually says, I might destroy you if I should go with you. So he's being very compassionate and saying, I need to just pull away from you guys for a little while. And if we think God might not do something like that, all we have to do is just go back into Genesis and remember what happened to all of the people in Noah's time. This is not just some scary word that God's trying to say to him that has no reality to it. So they take off the ornaments... And it says they kept them off from this place onward. So they traveled in mourning, realizing, hey, we better take this seriously. We're in big trouble if God decides not to go with us. So what's the result of all of this breach of the covenant? What's going to happen now? The tabernacle's in jeopardy. God's presence might not go with us. He might just consume us all if we head up from here. What's going to happen? Very interesting little kind of side note right in the middle of this text called tent talks. Kind of a new way of communicating with God. Exodus 33, 7 through 11 says, Now Moses used to take the tent and pitch it outside the camp, far off from the camp. And he called it the tent of meeting. And everyone who sought the Lord would go out to the tent of meeting, which was outside the camp. Notice the repetition. Whenever Moses went out to the tent, all the people would rise up, and each would stand at the door of his tent and watch Moses until he had gone into the tent. When Moses entered the tent, the pillar of cloud would descend and stand at the entrance of the tent, and the Lord would speak with Moses. And when all the people saw the pillar of cloud standing at the entrance of the tent, all the people would rise up and worship, each at his tent door. Thus the Lord used to speak to Moses face to face as a man speaks to his friend. When Moses turned again into the camp, his assistant Joshua, the son of Nun, a young man, would not depart from the tent. So even this in-between, substitute, temporary way of communicating kind of helps us capture this, I'm pulling away from you guys. Remember what I said, the tabernacle was going to be in the middle of of all of the tribes, they were going to be located all the way around it so that God could be in their midst. Now, Moses goes outside the camp, far off from the camp, and sets up a little tent that only he goes in, all because of this golden calf issue. And Joshua is kind of like the gatekeeper or attendant to make sure nobody else goes in except for Moses. So this is a sign that God is still going to communicate with them, which is a little bit hopeful. He didn't completely say, I'm done with you. I'm not even going to talk to you anymore. At least they have a tent of meeting. And why this tent? It's kind of interesting, this little tiny tent. It's an intimate, relational kind of place where people have conversations. A matter of fact, he said, they speak kind of like face to face. So you see kind of a, a relational aspect to God in this fact that he says, bring this tent out, and I'll come down, and I'll have conversation with you. Now, anybody could still go out to this tent. He told us that. So people could still inquire of the Lord to hear from him, but they couldn't go in the tent. But they could go out there and maybe say to Joshua, hey, could you ask Moses to ask this question of God? And so they could at least seek the Lord to some degree, but they weren't the ones that actually got to go in the tent, only Moses. They had to worship from afar, but it seems like they're starting to get it a little bit. Because when the cloud comes down, well, first off, they have a little bit more respect for Moses. When he goes into the tent, they all stand up and they're watching. So they realize, hey, this really is the messenger of God. And then when the cloud comes down, it says they rise up and then they worship, which means they probably bow down again after that when they see the cloud so that they could worship the Lord. But still, this is only an occasional presence of God, where he comes down, and then when he, the cloud leaves, meeting over, meeting's adjourned, you can leave now, Moses. But Joshua would stay behind. Numbers 12.8 and Deuteronomy 34 talk about this interaction with Moses and God. With him I speak face to face. No prophet has risen in Israel whom the Lord knew face to face. So Moses is an intercessor. He's the one who's going in and talking with God. The people worship God when the cloud comes, and when it leaves, they're done. So, new way of communicating with God for a while. We're not sure how long this lasts before the tabernacle is finally built, but this at least is a way for them to communicate with God. What did Moses talk about? When he was in the tent with God I would imagine there's lots of things That he talked about But we're going to get to be A fly on the tent wall And we're going to get to see What some of those conversations actually were We're going to see the dialogue Between Moses and God And from now on It's Moses speaks He asks a question God responds Moses asks another question God responds Moses asks another question God responds So Moses pleads to know God and for Israel. He says to the Lord, See, you say to me, Bring up this people, but you have not let me know whom you will send with me. Yet you have said, I know you by name, and you have also found favor in my sight. Now therefore, if I have found favor in your sight, please show me now your ways that I may know you in order to find favor in your sight. Consider too, that this nation is your people. One thing I forgot to mention is back in the first section, God said, you brought this people out. You see him, he did that again in chapter 32. Moses, you brought this people out. He does it again. And I'm wondering, because obviously we know it isn't just Moses who did this. I mean, he, God's the one who showed up in the burning bush to Moses and said, I want you to bring my people out. I'm going to use you to bring my people out now all of a sudden he's saying, they're your people. It's almost like he's saying, what will you you say when I say they're your people? It'd be a perfect opportunity for what? For Moses to chuck the people under the bus. Just like Adam did when God came to him and said, what have you done? Adam said, oh, it was the woman you gave me. He threw her under the bus immediately. Moses could have done that here, but he doesn't do that. And that's one of the things I want us to see as we go through this, is the growth of Moses from the burning bush to this chapter. Because here, he says, Lord, you've not let me know who you're going to send up with me. And if I've found favor in your sight, show me your ways. So he doesn't just say, please tell me you're going to come with us. He actually says, I want to know you in deeper, greater ways. It's interesting, though, that this time... Moses is doing most of the talking. So there's this dialogue going back and forth. If you think back to the burning bush, Moses was trying to get out of going to Egypt. Now he's saying, Lord, aren't you going to send yourself? Aren't you going to go with us? And remember, this is about a 250-mile journey, not the easiest route to get up to where the promised land was. And There's all kinds of different estimates about how many people we're talking about. I think it's easy for us to forget when we think of Moses and Israel that it's just a little small group of people. It's like a million and a half people. That would be an enormous task to be the guy who's being called on to take all of these people through this unknown land. Well, Who are these people? You know, all those ites that we have to go through their land and then we have to take over the promised land, all of Canaan, That would be terrifying. But Moses says, not just, God, I don't want to go alone, but show me your ways that I might know you so I can find favor in your sight. He wants even more of God. I mean, good grief, this guy's been on, talked to God in the burning bush, he's been on the mountain with God, he's got talks in the tent, God talks to him on the top of the mountain. And he says, I want even more. I want you to show me your ways. It reminds me of an illustration of how you can know somebody from afar, or at least think you know them from afar, but then when you get to know them up close, you find out so much more about them. It's like a backstage, backstage pass. I don't know if you've ever gone to a concert and you, got, you paid a little extra to get a backstage pass. But one time, Ryan and I went to a beautiful eulogy concert. We got a backstage pass, and there was only about seven of us. And these three guys. And so we were sitting in chairs literally about this far from me and Malachi. And we were able to ask them any question we wanted. All of a sudden, these guys took on a whole new form. They were different than what I thought they were. They, I got to know them better because they were revealing themselves. They were talking about their families. They were talking about their churches that they were involved in. They talked about the way they served. They talked about all the rest of their life. I think that's a little bit of what Moses is saying here. He's like, God... I. I do want you to go with us, but show me your ways so I can know you. I want to know you deeper. I don't want just to have you floating along behind us or sending an angel before us. I want to know you. I want you to be with us, too. And so God responds to him. My presence will go with you, and I will give you rest. You think, wow, that was fast. All Moses had to do was ask, and all of a sudden God's saying, okay, I decided I'm not going to stay away and be withdrawn, and I'm going to go with you. And on top of that, I'm going to give you rest. Can you imagine the the anxiety and the struggle there would be, thinking I've got to take this people all the way up and into the promised land by myself. God's presence isn't going to be with me. But then all of a sudden he says, my presence is going to be with you and I'm going to give you rest. So he's going to comfort him. He's going to quiet his heart. He's going to calm him. And he's going to take him all the way to the promised land, which is what he said he would do. And you think, all right, end of story, right? Moses should be happy and satisfied with that. But that's not what he says. Next thing Moses says is, if your presence will not go with me, do not bring us up from here. For how shall it be known that I have found favor in your sight, I and your people? Is it not your going with us so that we are distinct, I and your people, from every other people on the face of the earth? So it's like he asks him again, please don't go up. Don't send us up without going with us. We don't want to be alone in this. And then he says, I and your people. So Moses is is trying to include the Israelites with him in this whole thing. So again, another opportunity, he could have just left them out, thrown them under the bus, but he doesn't. He includes them because he wants to honor and glorify God. And he knows this, this time it's slightly different. He says, if you don't go with us, we're just like every other person on the face of the earth. There's nothing special about us if you don't go with us, God. The promised land, yeah, land flowing with milk and honey, it sounds incredible, sounds wonderful, but not if you don't go with us, God. We want you to be there. Again, it's interesting, in Exodus 3, Moses is trying to get out of going into Egypt to bring out the people. And now he's having a conversation with God saying, and God's trying to get out of going with the people, and he's saying, no, Lord, you can't do that. Just think of what that will mean for your name and your glory. You've got to come with us because you're the only thing that makes us distinct from every other person on the face of the earth. Again, here's just a a simple illustration of this. Imagine if I said to my wife, hey, Tyler, I bought... A huge house that's three times bigger than the one we have. I've furnished it with all the things you love, but I didn't decorate it because I know you like to decorate. I bought you a new car, and I've invested our money so well that I'm able to increase our bank account fourfold. And the house is in Seattle, but I'm not going to go with you. What, What does that say about our identity as a couple? What does that say about our marriage? And that's sort of what Moses is is arguing here with the Lord. He's saying, Lord, without you, we're nothing. You've got to go with us. You're You're the one that makes us beautiful to the nations around us. It's not something in us. It's because you are with us. So you've got to come with us. And again, he includes the people. With him, Here's the growth. From a guy who didn't even want to go say something to Pharaoh to a guy who says, Lord, it's all about you. If you don't come, I don't want to go. So, what do you think the Lord said in response? What do you expect from the Lord? And the Lord said to Moses, the very thing that you have spoken, I will do. And here's this phrase again, for you have found favor in my sight, and I know you by name. Moses appeals to God in the very beginning because, God, you said you know my name, and I found favor in your sight. And so Moses reflects back on that and says, this is what you said, God. So if you really believe that, if that's really true, If I really believe that, Lord, based on that, will you go with us? And then God says, yep, I will. What's interesting about saying, I know you by name, and you found favor in my sight, means that God was pleased with Moses. And there's a very intimate relationship with someone when you say, I know you by name. And we know that Moses pleased him because Moses obeyed God, maybe not perfectly, but he did obey God. And so this is the second time God affirms and reassures Moses. Relax. I'm going to go with you. Is the second thing I want us to kind of pick up out of this text. And I'm hoping you're seeing it on your own. But if not, I'll keep pointing it out. What do you expect God to be like? I think every one of us has a faulty view of who we think God is. And this text He certainly doesn't answer in ways that I think he would. Maybe in the beginning, but not the rest of this chapter. He is just gracious and loving, and he responds in unexpected ways. And we see that all along. Here's another reference to this whole kind of relationship thing. Back in Exodus 4.22, he told Moses, Say to Pharaoh, Thus says the Lord, Israel, my firstborn son. God's relational. This isn't just this. Remember, he called them stubborn, stiff necked people? But they're still his son. He still loves them. He still cares for them. He's still going on this journey with them, even though they turned away from him. So now you think, all right, the story's over, right? Guess what Moses asks for next? Please show me your glory. I don't want to just know your ways. I don't want to just have you go with us all the way to the promised land. Now I want to see your glory. I want something even more special, more personal than everything you've shown me up to this point. And again, if you think about that, the burning bush, God is talking to them. They're on the mountain. They, they saw this description of this sea-like stuff below the feet of God and all these you know, strange things happening. They, they got to hear God speak. He got to hear God speak. He gets to go into the tent and talks face-to-face. I don't even know what that would be like. This misty fog comes down and all of a sudden, Hello, Moses. How are you today? I don't know what God said to him, but they talked back and forth just like you and I would sit at a coffee shop and talk back and forth, having a conversation. Not, Moses, do what I told you. The stupid people. All right, goodbye. I'm out of here. It wasn't like that. He said he spoke to him face to face. That, that, that's not, when I think of God at times, I don't always draw up that kind of a loving, gentle, kind face-to-face dialogue kind of God. And so that's why I say, this text helps us see God in a little bit different way, an unexpected way. So Moses says, show me your glory. What is he really asking for? A fuller picture of who God really is. He's saying, show me your person. Show me your character. Show me something about you, the inside of you, the the brilliance, the glory, the love, the whatever it is about you that makes you, you show me some of that. Don't just show me your power. Don't just show me amazing miracles. Don't just talk to me. I want to know you show me what you're like. And it's interesting because God, all the times up to this point, God is the one who tells people go here, go there, do this, do this, and I'll come down and I'll show you myself. Or I'll come down and I'll talk to you. This is the first time where someone says to God, will you come down and show me something of yourself? So Moses is saying, I want a personal encounter with you, God. A personal, just for me, revelation of what you're like. And again, what what do we expect God would say? Yes, right? Of course, Moses, I will do that for you. I will make all my goodness pass before you, and I'll proclaim before you my name, the Lord. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious, and I will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. But he said, you cannot see my face, for man shall not see me and live. And the Lord said, behold, there is a place where you shall stand on the rock, and while my glory passes by, I will put you in a cleft of the rock and I will cover you with my hand until I have passed by. Then I will take away my hand and you shall see my back, but my face shall not be seen. And I think it cut off part of our text there. And I think he actually ends and says, because no one can see my face and live. I think it got dropped off the bottom of my PowerPoint (laughs) because that's an important part. No one can see my face and live. And so God has to put him in there and protect him from his face, but then we'll show him as he moves away. So again, that's not the answer that I figured God would give him. Moses longs to see God. God is pleased to show himself. He's going to give him another reassurance. I'm with you. I'm protecting you. I'm invested, I'm going to show you the splendor of my being. I'm going to show you my love, my mercy, my grace, all wrapped up in the goodness of my character. I'm going to display that to you. One of the interesting things about this text, again, when it comes to God is, what does God choose to say about himself? How does he reveal himself in this setting? What are the attributes that he proclaims to Moses and tells him about? He's going to let his goodness pass in front of him. And then this sort of strange statement, I will be gracious and I will show mercy. And just a side note, this is not God's normal way of communicating with us, showing his glory, sticking us up in a rock and covering us as he passes by. Now, I know we probably, most of us know this, but God usually communicates with us at this point in history through his word. That's his normal mode of operation because he's written everything down for us. And even even with Moses and the people of Israel, this is a very rare occurrence of God displaying his goodness to him. And so he doesn't kill Moses. He's going to put him in the rock. Again, the tender care and kindness of God in the whole midst of this. I'm going I'm to do what you asked, Moses. And then he puts him up in this little area and he covers him. And then he passes by and he shows him himself. I wouldn't expect this after the end of chapter 32, that this is how God would end chapter 33. But it's because... He's a more gracious and merciful God than I truly understand him to be. So Moses gets to experience not just God's power, but his person, his character, his essence. This reminds me of when Jesus was about to head to Jerusalem to be crucified, buried, and he takes James, Peter, and John up on the mountain. And he's transfigured before them, and his glory blasts out, and they all fall on their face. You think, okay, so was Jesus just, he wanted to show them just how powerful he was? No, he wanted to show them who he was, because that would help them with the task that they were about to go through. And I think that's the gracious kindness of God here he's showing him himself he's saying I'll go with you and I'm going to show you my glory because I know the task that you have before you I know you're a little apprehensive about taking all of these people all the way into the promised land and so I want you to know who I really am so it will comfort you and strengthen you for whatever is coming next which I know but you don't know which may be terrifying to you Moses but this is who I am and so he encourages the disciples with this. Whew. Is it hot in here? Crisis averted. Thanks to Moses, no, thanks to God. But Moses did intercede for the people. God's presence is going to go with the people. And Moses knows that God is with him and for him, and he's going to help him with everything he needs to accomplish what God is asking of him. What about us? Do we need something similar to what Moses needs? Are there things that, that are happening in your life right now, trials, challenges, things God is asking you to do, that seem terrifying to you? Maybe you're sitting here this morning and you've maybe not had a golden calf moment, but you've had some other kind of sin moment last week or last month, and it's still plaguing you. And you're struggling with that. What does God want you to know about himself? Well, there's five themes And I could have picked a whole bunch more, but there's five themes that are in the book of Exodus that launch into the New Testament and are even expanded in the New Testament. I want us to take a look at those, just to take this passage and apply it to our lives. The first one is pursuing idols damages intimacy with God. James 4.4 says, you adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is Enmity with God? Do you see the damage that sin can do? Do you take it lightly? Or when you realize the damage that's done and you realize your sin, do you take off the ornaments, so to speak? Do you humble yourself? Do you mourn like the Israelites did? So that you can get rid of whatever it is to have a closer relationship with God that you can ask Him to forgive you, that you can turn to Him from whatever that thing is? Is God more important to us? Draw near to God, and He will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will exalt you. I see words in there and attitudes in there like what the Israelites did when they took off their ornaments. That's the same kind of attitude that we should have when we sin, when we turn from God and don't put him as number one and first place in our life. When we recognize man, there is a distance between me and God. What's the second thing? What can we expect when we sin and repent? Again, the unexpectedness of what God was like and his tender care and his mercy and grace in the Old Testament, in this story of Exodus 33. What can we expect of him in the New Testament? In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our sins, according to the riches of his grace. Not judgment, but forgiveness when we humble ourselves and we ask the Lord to forgive us. Our Heavenly Father knows we need forgiveness and He bestows grace and mercy on us. Takeaway number three we are the tent of meeting. Whatever is going on in your life today, whatever God is asking you to do, you're not alone. And you have 24-7 access to God. So, right now, where's the tent of meeting? Nate told us about this. It's sitting right here. When you get up and get in your car, and you drive home or you drive to lunch, guess where the tent of meeting went? Wherever you went. Why? Because God lives inside of you in the Holy Spirit. And he says... We are the temple of the living God. He also says, Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we might receive mercy and find grace to help uh, in time of need. The Holy Spirit's living in us, and I have access to the throne of God anytime I want. So no matter what is going on in my life, no matter where I te- go in the world, that place, God is already there. I don't have to wait for the cloud to descend, I don't have to go up on a mountain into the fire and the thunder. All I have to do is say, Lord, help, and start talking with the Lord right there. I could be driving in my car. I could be talking with someone and realizing, man, I need help to be able to say the right thing to this person or to be loving. Or I could be right in the middle of an argument with someone, maybe even my wife, and I could say, God, I need help. Would you please be present in this moment and helping me to figure out how to say things better so that I'm more loving. Jesus told the disciples just before he left, I am with you always. So there's never a moment when he is not with you. Constant 24-7 access. Now the question is, how often do we remember that? Are we happy to just head for the promised land Woo, the benefits. This is going to be wonderful. Thank you, Lord. Look at all the good things. Like when you're on vacation. When you go to work tomorrow. When you're sitting down eating your meal. When you're mowing the lawn. When you're doing the dishes. The laundry. Do you remember that he's right there? And you can have a conversation with him. He's not distant. He's always with us. Fourth takeaway, we can know God intimately. Remember Moses said, show me your ways that I might know you. The number one way we know God is through his word. Romans 5.8 says, But God demonstrates his own love in this, that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. That verse tells us, When we were at our worst, God was loving us at his best. So what does that tell me? When God loves someone at their worst, what does that tell me about the character of God? I just learned something about God. God is merciful and compassionate and gracious even when people sin. Before they ever even turn to him, that is what he's like. So I know him when I see how he treats people. So when I read this passage, chapter 33 of Exodus, I now know because of the way he treated Israel and Moses, I know something about the character of God. He just showed us his glory in this story. Now I know who who he is and what he's like, which means I can find favor in his sight because I know what he's like. I can be like him. I know what he requires. I know what he asks. I know what relationship looks like with God. I know how to talk to God. I got to see Moses talk to God. So I can pattern ways that I talk to God in the ways that Moses talked to God. Not just when we're completely lost and in the desert and distant from God because we've sinned but every day. But isn't it interesting that the times when we most pull our phone up and look on the map to figure out how to get where we're going or to figure out where we are is when we're lost. But as soon as we're found, cruising through life, this is wonderful, I don't need my map. Sometimes that's what we do with God's Word. Because life is going good. I don't need God. But he's always available for us to know him. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. We have seen his glory. No one has ever seen God. The only God who is at the Father's side has made him known. You want to know and see the glory of God and know God? Look at Jesus. Hebrews 1.3 says it's the radiance of God's glory in the person of Jesus. So if you want to show me your glory moment with God, pick up your Bible and read Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John. And you will see the glory of God. And you will know him and you will know what he's like. You will know what he thinks of you by the way he treats people all throughout that passage. Then the last thing, last takeaway. We have a greater intercessor than Moses. For Jesus has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses, as much more glory as the builder of the house has more honor than the house itself. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. Jesus won't throw us under the bus. He's seated at the right hand of the Father right now, talking to God about us, interceding. Isn't that encouraging? No matter what it is you're going through, the Israelites had Moses, and that was awesome, right? God was about to consume them and not go with them to the promised land. And Moses has this conversation with him, and God says, okay, I'll go. And I'm going to show you what I'm like. I'm going to blow your mind, Moses. And then we're going to go to the promised land. Now there's a whole bunch of other stuff that goes on. But that's what he does for him. What about us? We have Jesus sitting next to God. We don't have Moses in a rock being guarded by God as he passes by. We have Jesus sitting next to the Father interceding for us. That's encouraging. All right, so where is God taking all of this? Moses saw God As he chose to reveal himself in the first five books of the Bible. Moses wrote all those five books. He interacted with God for I don't know how many years exactly. We have 61 more books of God revealing himself to us. And I want to share with you what's coming. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. Revelation 21.3 They will see his face. Moses didn't get to see his face. We will see his face. And then you're thinking, wait a minute, how are we going to be able to stand in the glory of God and see his face and not be killed? How's that possible for us? Now to the one who is able to keep you from falling, to cause you to stand rejoicing without blemish before his glorious presence. To the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord. That's where we're headed. That's where God is taking this grand story. They wanted his presence to go with them to the promised land. We're going to be in his presence seeing him face to face one day forever and ever and ever with all of his glory. Let's pray. Father God, thank you for your word that opens up our eyes to see what you are really like, not what we think you're like. And that you are a God who is pleased to reveal yourself to us. You are a God who is gracious and merciful and kind. We thank you that one day we will get to stand in your presence and see your glory face to face because of your son, Jesus Christ, and what he's done for us. Lord, help us to want to know you more. To remember that you are with us all the time. We thank you that you are with us this morning. And we give you praise in Jesus' name. Amen.